This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Globalization and technological advances have spurred U.S. policymakers to often turn to economic walls. Listen to my chat with former White House advisor Glenn Hubbard, who argues in his new book that bridges are better for mass prosperity. Welcome to the Exchange Conversation with people of interest to business and financial professionals around the world. I'm Gina Chan, Washington columnist for Reuters Breaking Views, the global financial commentary arm of Reuters News. This week, we're talking to former White House advisor Glenn Hubbard about economic walls and bridges. His new book offers a do's and don'ts guide for political leaders on how to address the upheaval from technological advances and globalization. The Columbia University professor notes that most people have confronted change with barriers, both physical and metaphorical, like trade tariffs. But in The Wall and the Bridge, Fear and Opportunity in Disruption's Wake, Hubbard argues that such policies usually fail. Instead, to bring prosperity for all, policymakers can meet the moment by preparing workers who need skills for the new economy and assistance to manage that transition. Along the way, the former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors during George W. Bush's presidency talks about why 18th century's Adam Smith is still relevant and why capitalism has gotten a bad rep. Welcome, Professor Hubbard. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Your book is really timely, uh, given everything we've seen in this pandemic-infected economy. But you were actually well into writing your book, The Wall and the Bridge, Fear and Opportunity in Disruption's Wake, when COVID-19 hit. So I was wondering, especially for those who may not have had a chance to read your book yet, how do you apply some of the arguments that you make in the book to today's sort of strange economic conditions where we've seen a record number of job openings, uh, a record number of people quitting, and employers just trying to sort of get their heads around this current situation? It's a great question. And the book is really about, I guess, a good way of thinking about it is a coin. And the head side of the coin are things we like, like growth and innovation and dynamic economy. The tail side of the coin is disruption. And part of the problem we've had for decades, the reason I started the project, is we talk a lot about the head side and the winds, but we don't talk a lot about how to help people and places actually cope with disruption in the economy. Now, fast forward to the pandemic, talk about a disruption. I mean, it sort of came from nowhere and has caused enormous disruption and churn and new possibilities as well for people to change jobs and even entire careers. 
but it really lays bare the fact that A, we need to build bridges to help people prepare for changes in the economy, and B, we need to reconnect them if they fall out of the boat. And what about the tendency to favor barriers, as you talk about, especially when there is great change, great upheaval, especially among political leaders. I was very interested in your talk about advising President George W. Bush about the steel tariffs and and your arguments about why that wouldn't be a good idea, why it might help sort of this certain industry, the broader ramifications would actually be harmful writ large. But that, especially in uncertain times where workers are, are being sort of dislocated, sometimes that can be a hard argument to make. And I was wondering how you see that in the context of, uh, of China now and the tariffs that were imposed under President Donald Trump and kept under his successor, President Joe Biden. I mean, if you were advising President Biden now on, on what to do about these tariffs, what would you say and how would you make the kinds of arguments that also have to meet certain you know, political considerations that are obviously on the White House's mind? You ask a great set of questions there to start with, why are walls a kind of go-to solution for uh, the political class? The answer is pretty simple. When you have disruption, if you think of disruption as leading to a demand for something to help people adapt, politicians supply, if you will, in one of two ways. One is to say, I'll build a wall. I'll protect you against change. I'll make the past come back again. Another would be to build a bridge for the same people, helping them either get to a new place or get back if they've you know, lost their way in the, in the labor market. So I can understand why walls are easier to talk about. It's, it's very simple to go into a community and say, I'm going to make it like the past. The problem is it's false, and we shouldn't even want that. Uh, the economy as a whole is much better off as a result of technological change and globalization. Our responsibility is to make sure that everybody sees that benefit. And that's, I think, where we, where we fell down. You know, you mentioned the steel tariff example with President Bush. I actually think I learned a lot from him rather than the other way around. I did make the familiar economic arguments that steel tariffs are a bad idea. But what I didn't do was give him an alternative that said, here are the ways you could help people and places as opposed to simply, you know, don't. And I think economists have fallen into that trap. You know, likewise with China, it becomes very seductive to say, we'll solve everything with tariffs if we're not going to help people and places that have been affected by the China shock that I talk about uh, in the book. So if we want bridges to be more than just a word, Policymakers need to step up and, and think about it, and economists too. Well, where do you think the opportunity is now for those kinds of bridges, especially given what we're seeing in the labor market? There seems to be a real big mismatch between sort of what employers want and need and the kind of workers that are out there and the skills they have. There's um, sort of geographic dislocations. We don't seem to be a good, we don't seem to have a good system for sort of 
matching people to where the jobs are sometimes, you know, in, in terms of various regions. Do you think that given the tight labor market now and the difficulties in hiring that that presents a, a unique opportunity for some of the assistance programs that you mentioned in your book? I do think it's a heightened opportunity simply because there's so much attention being focused on it. You know, it's important to remind ourselves we once did this right. So I've had two examples I talk about a lot in the book are the development of and evolution of the land-grant colleges in the United States that started in the 19th century, actually under President Lincoln's administration, and then under President Franklin Roosevelt, the GI Bill that tried to reconnect millions of service people to an economy that had changed while they were away at war. We've done this before. In the modern economy, it strikes me the right answer would be to focus on the kinds of institutions that are actually really nimble in helping people develop skills. So I spend a lot of time in the book on community colleges and what we could do to be providing resources to community colleges. The location around the country of applied research centers that would really help modern business practices permeate the entire economy, not just the most flourishing uh, parts of our economy. So I think there's a lot more we could do. We also need to do much more to reward work. If we want people to be committed to work and advancement, we need to make work pay. We have programs in the United States that are focused on that, but they're not strong enough to be the work support that we really need. So I hope that this economy, where there's so much attention being paid, as you rightly said, to these dislocations of the labor market, that we'll start focusing on this. So why do you think some programs like that don't get more attention? Like, under President Trump, one thing I was a, a fan of was sort of the worker training programs, the skills training that they were advocating. Some of it already happening at a lot of companies, like I think you mentioned IBM in your book and Lockheed Martin, Boeing, but they seem to try to highlight that a bit more and using the network of community colleges, because as you say, that is really a connection for a lot of people who don't, you know, go to a four-year university, but it doesn't seem to get sort of the splashy attention that, you know, a tariffs get or uh, subsidies for chip makers. It seems like that's kind of the the thing that gets policymakers going in, in Congress, as opposed to some of these other jobs that uh, programs that, as you say, would really help workers, but seem to just sort of be a bit more under the radar. Well, I agree. And I think policymakers need to be bolder in their communication. You know, one reason the public responds better to walls is, you know, walls can be portrayed as a silver bullet solution. I'll just protect you. I mean, that sounds great. <laughs> you can't. And if on the other side, though, all you're talking about are relatively small ideas. So, for example, Historically, you know, going back to the 1960s in the U.S., we had a program called Trade Adjustment Assistance that is just really small and not that helpful. And so I think a lot of individuals believe, maybe justifiably, that we're not focused on that. Uh, we don't do enough to help communities that have been left behind as well as the people. So I, I think it starts with policymakers and economists 
noticing, talking about it more, and then suggesting bigger ideas. The, when I first started working on this, the dollars that it would cost struck me as very, very expensive, you know, be on the order of $100 billion a year. But compared to what we've been doing during the pandemic, that doesn't sound that expensive. And I talk about ways to pay for it as well. So I, I think it requires a politician, you know, turning up the volume. Yeah, and you're right. Those numbers are a bit relative now after we've seen trillions and trillions of dollars uh, passed by Congress um, over the last two years. Well, in terms of some of the other bridges and what we've seen in terms of who has left the labor market during the pandemic, particularly women, are there other programs that you think could be bridges that involve things that are sort of out of the box thinking, like you know, some of the childcare provisions and Build Back Better? Or are there other things that you think, given who we've seen where labor the labor participation rate has fallen for women, black workers have also been lagging in the recovery? Are, are there certain things that we could do there? Great question. And this is a real social problem. You know, we need to work harder to get our labor force participation rate up not because of an obsession with work, but more a lot of our dignity and meaning in an economy comes from meaningful work. My colleague at Columbia and Nobel Prize winner, Ned Phelps, has stressed this point for years in human flourishing and dynamism in economies. As to what to do about it, childcare provisions can make sense but you have to be careful. They need to be designed in a way that encourages, not discourages work. We've seen part of that debate playing out right now in Washington. The other is really to double down on wage subsidies for work. And again, programs that could be done, I think community colleges are the most efficient, but local businesses working with local educational institutions to provide opportunities in, in that labor market. Right. And I also wanted to get your thoughts on something that's been also top of mind in Washington these days, at least particularly among the Democrats in the White House in terms of antitrust and competition and big companies. You talk about competition in in your book and sort of the the self-interest that companies or business executives have and how that relates to sort of the industry and competitive environment. Do you think that there is a problem with some of the companies today being too dominant and how much that affects competition? Is that, do you see that as a, a wall or, or a bridge in terms of, you know, these are also successful companies. They were one startups themselves that disrupted the bigger players. And that's sort of the, the natural evolution of the free market. I think you're asking exactly the right question. Competition and openness are super important. You know, in the book, I talk a lot about Adam Smith, who of course wrote The Wealth of Nations, kind of foundation work in economics. Those are big deals. And in the modern economy, I think if Smith were here and alive today, he would say, well, I wanna make sure that everybody has the ability to compete in the economy. And I want to make sure that you really are looking out for what we today would call competition policy. That said, every one of the big tech firms has real competitors. 
And so there may or may not be an antitrust problem. I, I would reserve judgment on that. But I think we always have to be vigilant. The concern would be, of course, if we're you know, too cracking down on successful technology companies, we may be giving disincentives for innovation. So there's really a big trade-off, but it is a question that government should definitely be considering. Yeah, well, and I, you mentioned Ada Smith. I was um, really interested um, in how often you mentioned him in your book because he's not someone who's talked about, obviously, as much these days, although obviously his work and his thinking permeates um, our world in, in all sorts of ways. How do you think he is still relevant and how do you think his philosophies have been misinterpreted? Because you talk a lot about yeah. you know, certain things that how he would see a situation today and how his thinking is still relevant in terms of creating a prosperous society. Smith was a radical in his day and, and his thoughts are radical still. You know, when he wrote The Wealth of Nations, it was as much as anything else, a full bore reply against mercantilism, which was the dominant economic philosophy today that said, you know, the goal is to have trade surpluses, not deficits, to protect industries. Does all this sound familiar? It might have been 1776, but sounds awfully familiar to today. Smith turned it on its head and said, you know, the wealth of a nation isn't gold and silver. The wealth of a nation is the ability of its citizens to consume. And that means you want a productive, grow the pie kind of economy. So in that sense, he's very relevant. The surprise about Smith, I think to many people, even some economists, is that the Smith that wrote The Wealth of Nations, about two decades before that, wrote a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And it's a, not an easy read, but a bottom line of the book in today's uh, vernacular would be, we need to focus on empathy uh, and making sure everybody is included. I, I think of it as a kind of uh, all-in economy that you know, the Smith view is we should be, uh, each of us should be able to be all in and connected, but we also should be all in. That is all of us have a chance to flourish. The Smith of those two books is about both of those concepts of all in, and they're both important today. Well, that raises an interesting point and sort of the broader mood of today. And you talked um, in a recent Atlantic article as well about your business school students asking you about the value of, of capitalism. And I wanted to ask about, you know, what you think can be done, if anything, about how sort of the general population thinks about that concept today. Does there need to be some sort of rebrand? Same with free trade that has also gotten a bad rep and you know, it used to be Republicans could be relied upon to support free trade agreements like the Trans-Pacific Partnership with a lot of Asian nations. But a lot of those concepts are being shot down by both sides of the political aisle these days. How do you hope capitalism can, can sort of get a better reputation, if you will? Is, is that possible in today's environment? I think it's definitely possible and it's super important. You know, I mentioned in that piece that you talked about that 
you know, business leaders should not be taking social support for market capitalism as given. I think it'd be unrealistic of them to do that. The case has to be made. To me, it's a very strong case. We have benefited handsomely in our country and around the world from market capitalism. At the same time, though, we have not done a very good job about disruption. And if you ask yourself, why has capitalism been so long lasting in the United States, even when we have had these big disruptions of shifting from agriculture to manufacturing, manufacturing to services, depressions. And I think the reason is we have had big policies at points in time. You know, I mentioned the 19th century big wave of policies, the middle of the 20th centuries. We, we just got timid, I think, in recent decades about making sure that there are the appropriate guardrails to keep everybody connected to the economy. If we do that, then I think we have a capitalism that works for more Americans. And how do you see industrial policy fitting or, or not fitting into that? We've seen just recently the House of Representatives introduced a bill that is similar to something the Senate passed to provide about $52 billion to support the semiconductor industry, which has obviously been a, a huge problem in terms of supply shortages in the car industry and, and various other sectors, and worries about you know, who, who controls that vital asset. Where do you think industrial policy sits in capitalism? Is, is there a place for it, even in a place like the United States? I think it has to be a very small place. The arguments that strike me as reasonable would relate to a national security concern. If that's a real concern, there's certainly a role for, for government. If you go back to those successful interventions that I mentioned in the past to save capitalism, they were big and bold and about opportunity. They weren't about particular firms and particular uh, industries. Remember that many of the jobs people like today weren't even in the mind's eye 40 or 50 years ago. So I don't know that we would have wanted a bureau in Washington telling us which jobs or industries are good and which jobs or industries are bad. You know, I, I would bungle my high school Latin if I tried to say it, but you know, there's an expression which in English would be, who watches the watchers? Mm -hmm. So who is it that gets to make this decision? I mean, one of the genius of market capitalism is that decentralized forces, bottoms up, makes a decision instead of top down. So count me very skeptical of industrial policy. Got it. Well, uh, lastly, I wanted to ask you about your profession and the study of the economy, where you, you talk about in the book of, you know, economists and noticing things, especially in sort of the, the real economy and, and what goes on with real people, if you will. And I wanted to get a sense of how you think economists have done in terms of sort of pontificating or commenting on the pandemic and where we go from here. And are there things that you didn't see coming as a result of what's happened? I mean, obviously the pandemic itself is a once in a lifetime sort yeah, of thing, yeah. hopefully, but, yeah. but in terms of the, um, the effects of it on the economy, on workers, are there things that you 
were surprised happened that you felt was a result of, of you or, or other economists for that matter, just not noticing certain things that were sort of in the, un, in the undercurrents and that manifested itself given how much society had changed because of the virus? Well, actually the pandemic, I think is an example where economists actually did a pretty good job once it happened of noticing, of burrowing in, of trying to figure out what was going on in the job market in firms. It's been really a fertile area of very applied work that's been very important for business people and for policymakers. I think what's harder for economists is to notice and focus on really slow moving things. So the big forces I talk about in the book of technological change and globalization, they're not like a pandemic. They don't come on all at once. They, they gradually happen over time. And we focus a lot on what's in the news, inflation or the pandemic, without thinking about these slow moving forces that were um, devastating to many people. In the book, I talk about the Queen of England, you know, famously asking a question of economists at the London School of Economics, why did nobody notice? And I think a simple answer to the Queen's question is you can't notice if you're not looking. Mm -hmm. And so I think going back to Smith's example of the pen factory and the wealth of nations, economists need to go out, get out more and notice. And is, that's why you went to, I think, Youngstown in, in the book. And, and yes. is that something you, I mean, obviously with the pandemic and some of the travel limitations, perhaps it's a bit harder, but is that something you've been trying to continue? Yes, sorry. Perhaps through Zoom or something? Yeah, Columbia, we have a class every year called Bridging the American Divide uh, that is focused exactly on that. And even during the pandemic, it has taken place. It's been virtual, unfortunately, rather than, than going, but I think it's very, very important. And just last question uh, related to your profession, um, and it sort of fits into this whole um, discussion about disruption and sort of the things that you favor when there is great change. And one of the sort of victims, it seems, are, are sort of institutions and sort of so-called experts, um, where if you take that as economists or, or others, um, as various other outlets and sources of information come about and you know people are are more polarized. Um, what I found really striking about your book is that it was very sort of middle of the road. I mean, I know you served in Republican administrations, but none of the ideas could be sort of pinned down per se to, you know, one extreme or the other. I mean, obviously, Perhaps some of the defenses about the free market and capitalism would kind of fit more on what you would think of as traditional Republicans, but that it, it was much more um, sort of a centrist uh, book to me. And where, where do you think that fits in into today's um, society, particularly in Washington? Is there still a place for, um, for voices like that, for ideas like that? I think there has to be, because if you go back to what I was saying earlier, that there's always going to be a demand for adaptation when you have disruption, and politicians can supply either walls or bridges. And I think one role that experts can play is helping to design those bridges 
and work with policymakers on how they might talk about them and implement them. As you know, many of the ideas I talk about in the book are you know, ideas from both parties. I mean, Paul Ryan, who was the former Speaker of the House, and Barack Obama, former president, both espouse many of the ideas that I've talked about. They're not Democrat or Republican ideas. So I, when everybody says that, you know, nothing can happen, our politics are totally broken, I'm not sure. I think that a political candidate who came out with ideas that actually worked and helped people's lives probably is a good political answer as well as a good economic answer. Well, I hope we see more of that. Uh, Professor Hubbard, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Hubbard, for your time. And thanks to all of you for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Sharon Lamb. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Acast. Also check us out at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.